Okay, good evening. Tough crowd. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, it's always a, a great joy, a privilege to be here. Uh, again, bring greetings from, from Johannesburg. Uh, continuing through 2 Corinthians. So last month when I was here, we did 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. We looked at Paul's thorn in the flesh. So today we're going to do 2 Corinthians 12, 11 to 18. So if you can turn there in your Bibles or else, I'm not sure if it will be up there. Maybe it will be up there. But uh, otherwise, follow along in, in, uh, in your Bibles. I'm just going to read through it first and then we'll, we'll go through it. So Paul says in verse 11, he says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not bound to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So just some background, if it's your first time, uh, just very briefly, some background to Second Corinthians. So, uh, Corinth was a church planted, well, the church in Corinth was planted by the Apostle Paul. He spent about a year and a half there planting the church, uh, and then he left. And while he was away, these false apostles crept in and seduced the church. They brought letters of recommendation, and they really fitted uh, the culture of Corinth. They were dynamic. They were eloquent, they were strong, domineering leaders, which is what the Corinthian culture um, prized in leaders. And uh, they were everything contrary to what the church had prized in leaders. They were not humble, uh, they were not servants, they were not loving, uh, they were abusive in actual fact, and they took advantage of the Corinthians and their carnality, and when Paul returned a second time, expecting to be refreshed by the church that he loved so much and that he had planted, uh, he was attacked, he was slandered publicly, and no one arose to, to defend him. No one said, wait a minute, uh, you shouldn't speak about Paul like that. He's an apostle, we know his character, we know his love for us. Uh, they didn't do that, and so Paul left with a, really a broken heart. He couldn't even function in ministry normally. Uh, the Lord opened a door for him in another place, but he couldn't stay there. He, his heart was just really with the Corinthians. He was heartbroken. Uh, and so he writes this letter to them. Uh, he wrote another letter that we don't have, calling them to repentance. And then Titus went there and got feedback that there seems to have been some sort of repentance. And so Paul rejoiced at that, but he knew that these false apostles were still there. And so he writes this letter, and it's his most personal letter. It's more autobiographical than theological. And so it's one of my favorite epistles because really, you really get to see the heart of the Apostle Paul. Uh, you get to see his, his love for God's people and his love for, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so he's reaching the end of his letter, and he says in verse 11, he says, I have been a fool. Uh, so he he. He has to sort of defend himself, defend himself, uh, and so that's why he's calling himself a fool over and over again. He says, "I hate doing this. I'm speaking like a madman. Uh, you know, I don't want to defend myself." But he says, "I've been a fool." And then he says to the Corinthians, "You forced me to it." 
for I ought to have been commended by you. So the Corinthians should have been commending the apostle. They should have been defending him and saying, we know Paul's character. We know his, his doctrine. Uh, they should have gotten rid of these, these devices of false apostles, but they didn't. And so Paul says, you forced me into this position. So some application for, for us as a church here uh, is that Heritage Potch should be a church that commends people. Okay? Uh, it's not nice. In fact, the Bible says you're a fool if you commend yourself. Isn't that right? Let others commend you. Don't commend yourself. Paul is forced to commend himself, but he does it in a very ironic way. He commends himself through all his weaknesses, actually. Uh, so, you know, you think he's going to talk about how great he is, but he ends up talking about everything that he suffers and all his weaknesses. So he does do it in an ironic way. But I think there's application here uh, that God's people should be people who commend what is good in others, uh, that commend their brothers and sisters for uh, overcoming sin, for doing good works, not flattery. So in my experience... Uh, in, in church life and, and in ministry, often in churches, uh, there are certain people who think that any form of com- commendation, saying anything nice about someone is flattery. Okay, So the only time you ever hear them speak is to criticize. Uh, when you're in ministry, you know, there's certain people, the only time they ever send you an email is to tell you what's wrong. Okay, <laughs> uh, And that's fine. It's not that pastors are above correction or anything like that. Uh, But one does wonder, if you can never tell me what's good, the only time you ever speak to me, the only time you ever reach out to me, the only time you ever send an email or a message is to tell me what I've done wrong or what you disagree with, well, then I wonder about your heart. Is this coming from a place of love? Is it coming from a place of, you know, I want what's best for the church? Or are you just a critical person? So flattery is when you lie about someone. Flattery is, is, is ungodly. It's manipulative. You're using words to try and get people to do what you want. We're not to be flatterers. But we are to commend what is good. We are to commend when we see God working to encourage. Um, uh, The Corinthian church should have done this. So let me challenge on that to, to commend what is good and to defend godly men and women when they are being falsely accused, if you know them. If you know their character and you know what's going on and you see that they are being slandered, Defend them. The devil always wants to bring division. The scriptures are very clear about, uh, you know, don't bring an accusation against an elder, a pastor, unless there are two or three witnesses. Okay? And so if you're in a, you know, chatting and someone starts to slander an elder or pastor, uh, you know, tell them, well, if you have an issue, go and speak to that person. Okay? Don't entertain that uh, because it causes division. The next thing he says is, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles. So he creates a word here, super apostles, uh, even though I am nothing. So he's speaking sarcastically about them. Uh, You know, you get your run of the mill apostles, but then you get these guys. And they really did. They thought they were super, super apostles. Uh, They had it all together. They were charismatic, dynamic, uh, good looking because we, we know this because they teased Paul for being ugly. Uh, they actually mocked Paul for being ugly. That's the type of people that these guys were. But that fits with what we see in, in the contemporary church, isn't that right? Uh, this obsession with the outward, this obsession with charisma, this obsession with uh, strong leadership. Now, strong leadership is not wrong in and of itself. Uh, pastors should be strong on what we stand for and the truth of God's word, but not domineering, not abusive. Uh, we're, we're not dictators telling people what to do. And in fact, the word is, we are ministers, it means a servant, to serve God's people. Jesus Christ himself said that. Though he was Lord, yet he came to, to serve. And so Paul teases them here, and then he says, even though I am nothing. Now, this is not false humility by Paul. Paul is not saying I'm nothing, but actually, actually, I'm really great. Uh, uh, you know, we do that kind of thing. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not good at that. Uh, but you know, actually, I am. Uh, <laughs> uh, Paul's not doing that. 
he's saying within himself, he's not talking about the revelation God has given him or the treasure that he has within this earthen vessel that he's spoken about earlier in this letter. That, that is, is priceless. That is everything. That's the gospel. But in himself, uh, he, he knows, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Okay. Uh, he didn't walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he didn't have this great gift of eloquence. Uh, it seems as though he was ugly, that there was some sort of disfigurement or something like that. So he says, I, I'm nothing. I'm not going to try and compete with these guys on those standards. But God has given me this revelation. And I've been faithful to this revelation because he goes on to say in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The signs of a true apostle. Uh, what signs were these? We'll get to the, the signs and wonders just now. But the first thing was that he planted the church. That was apostolic work in the early church. The apostles went out. He planted the church. Uh, he suffered. He had integrity. He refused to, to peddle God's word, to manipulate it, to dilute it. Uh, it wasn't a career choice for Paul. He wasn't out to make money. He didn't twist the scriptures to get what he wanted. He didn't dilute it to please some people. Uh, or to fit in in some way, he faithfully proclaimed God's word with utmost patience. Uh, he, he persevered. That's uh, one of the things that uh, has really stood out for me as I've studied 2 Corinthians, is perseverance. Okay? Uh, if you think, I would like to go into ministry, I think that God may have called me to ministry, uh, let me challenge you that Perseverance is critical. Okay. The, the statistics that come from America are horrific, if they're true. But they probably are true because the Americans are good at keeping statistics. Uh, the, 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 the figures are, are in the thousands of men leaving the ministry every month. And when they interview them, they say, it's not what I expected. It's much harder than I thought it would be. And that's the truth. You can have a romantic view of ministry. And it is a great privilege. It is a glorious privilege. But it is much harder than you think. And so Paul says, as a true apostle, he has patiently endured. He has persevered. He has not given up. And that's true for the Christian life, not just for, for pastors. Those that endure to the end will be saved. Uh, how do you know someone is truly saved ultimately if they endure to the end? Okay. That's the ultimate test. Okay. Because we all know people that we've thought were believers and have apostatized. The ultimate test is how do I know that you're truly saved? Will you, I will know if you endure to the end. Okay. And it's the same for those in ministry. Paul says, as an apostle, he has endured with utmost patience. And you can go and read 2 Corinthians if you hadn't re haven't read it before. He suffered terribly, didn't he? Every, you, you can go and read about the shipwrecks and the beatings and uh, being stoned and left for dead and all the terrible things that he, he suffered. Can you imagine being the apostle Paul? Every day waking up, I wonder what's going to happen today, okay? In fact, when he started his ministry, remember Ananias uh, uh, comes to him and says, you know, uh, the Lord wants you to know how many things you're going to suffer. <laughs> okay? Right up front, uh, that's the wonderful thing I love about the Lord. He never tries to trick us, isn't that right? Uh, it, Christianity never says, come to me, all your problems will go away, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, it'll all be fantastic, you'll be the most popular person in your class, uh, uh, you'll be rich, all of these things. Okay, never says that. Never promises those things. In fact, the opposite, the Lord says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to be willing to lose your life. And so the Lord tells Paul, you're going to suffer many things for my name's sake. Okay, right up at the beginning. And uh, so every day, I can imagine he woke up. Uh, I mean, if anyone wanted, you know, had a good reason to to quit ministry, you could say it's Paul. Shame that guy's had a tough time. Maybe he could take early retirement. Uh, you know, if he was on LinkedIn, 
Uh, <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn, and you know, I get these. You know, ten people have been viewing your. Uh, this place is looking for a teacher or a lecturer or whatever it is, and uh, you know, you can imagine Paul. Like, sure, okay, he has an opening over here. I could just become a rabbi somewhere in a little village. You know, just a nice uh, retirement somewhere. Uh, I always like the story of John Calvin because John Calvin, that's exactly what he wanted. Uh, if you know the story, he was very academic and he just wanted to go to Strasbourg and, and he just wanted to be a, an academic, a theologian. He just wanted to sit and write. He didn't want to be a pastor. He just wanted to sit and write. And uh, providentially, there was a war going on, so he couldn't go this road, so he had to go this road. And he, he went through Geneva. He was just going to spend one night in Geneva and the pastor in Geneva, William Farrell, hears that Calvin's there and he comes to Calvin as a young man and he says, Calvin, if you don't stay here and do God's work here as a pastor, God will curse you. <laughs> and uh, Calvin's just petrified and he stays. And uh, he, he, he ends up doing this work of ministry and he suffered many things. People would call their dogs Calvin uh, because they hated him so much in Geneva. In fact, they chase him away eventually and then the Lord calls him back there and he has to go all the way back. Uh, and uh, it's quite fascinating. He's away for several years, but his first sermon, I mean, if it was my first sermon, I would be like, I told you guys, uh, yeah, you should have listened to me. Now you're calling me back. Now you need me. But his first sermon, he picks up with the very next verse. So he left you know, five years ago, finished the last sermon. When he comes back, he picks it up from the very next verse uh, straight away. So you could say, Paul, why didn't you give up? Calvin, why didn't you give up? Uh, much easier lives that you could have had. But Paul says, as a true apostle, utmost patience, okay, persevered, endured. And he says, with signs and wonders and mighty works, the signs of a true apostle. And so the last time I was here, uh, we heard about Paul's thorn in the flesh and also about visions. So Paul talks about this vision that he had because the false apostles were, were, were talking about how many visions they had had. And Paul just mentions, I was caught up into the third heaven, but it's things I can't even talk about. So he just sort of mentions it and then puts it away. He says, I can't even talk about it. Because Paul knows that there's no use arguing about visions. Who's had a greater vision? How can you prove it? It's unverifiable. But signs and wonders are verifiable. Okay. If I say to you, you know, last night the Lord appeared to me and uh, told me ABC and all of these things and this is what you need to do. He has my bank account. <laughs> uh, I mean, you can tell I'm talking rubbish, but you can't prove it. It's unverifiable. Okay? And so Paul says, we can't argue about that stuff. You want proof that I'm a true apostle? Signs and wonders and mighty works were done by me. That was verifiable. We need to understand, when you go and read Acts, and you see what the apostles did, they were proper, public, verifiable works. They were organic healings. Immediate healings. Clearly supernatural. It is not someone, I had a sore back and it's amazing, it's gone now. Or my one leg is shorter than the other, now they're the same length. There weren't tent meetings where people are stirred up into hysteria and their emotions are worked upon. So of course you forget about the pain in your body because you're hyped up and adrenaline is re released and all of these things. Uh, there weren't tent meetings where you know people are filtered. Who can go up front? Wait a minute, this is pretty serious. You don't have an arm. No, you can stay down here. They were real miracles. Verifiable. Paul is saying that the signs of an apostle were done by me. You could see them. Raising people from the dead. People who had been blind from their birth. Everyone knew they were blind. It's not the guy at the robot who pretends to be paralyzed and then is fine when he has to go home. They were paralyzed. The whole village knew. For years and years and years, you could go and interview these people. They were supernaturally healed. It was not done in a corner. It was public. 
These other guys were not doing that. Nobody else could do that. Otherwise, Paul couldn't say the signs of an apostle. He was doing this, not in his own strength, even the way that he speaks. They were done through him. Now, why were they done? Why, why, why does Paul say these signs, these things, these miracles were done by me? Why, why did these, when you read the book of Acts, why did Jesus and the apostles suddenly, there's this explosion of, of miracles? Why? Well, let me give you a few verses. Acts 2.22. Uh, Men of Israel, this is Peter, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. How was Jesus? He's talking about Jesus here. Jesus of Nazareth. How was Jesus attested? How was he proven by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst? See what Peter is saying? How do we know that Jesus is the Messiah? He was proven to be the Messiah by the miracles, the mighty works that God did through him. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 2 verse 3, How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. It was confirmed by the supernatural. Last verse, Acts 14, verse 3. It says, Paul and Barnabas, so they, Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The signs and wonders were there to prove the messenger and the message. To prove the messenger and the message. To vindicate the messenger, that the messenger was authentic, and that the message was authentic, that the message was true. Remember, this is a radical transitional period in redemptive history. It is a shift from the old covenant to the new covenant. It is a unique period in history. You really need to understand this. It will, it will, it will free you from so much confusion. People say, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so we, you know, we should be expecting these things now. No, that's not what that means. God is the same in his essence and his attributes, but clearly God acts in different ways at different times in history. He interacts with people in different ways. He sends prophets at certain times. He gave the laws. There's different dispensations, different eras of interaction. Go and read the scriptures. Not everyone was doing miracles. There are certain times when there are miracle workers. And when you go and graph miracle workers and you go and graph the the scriptures being written down, you will see correlation. Because the miracle, who's the first guy to do miracles? Moses. Adam's not doing them. Abel's not doing them. It's not happening. You can go and read. Abraham's not doing them. Nobody's doing them. The first guy to do miracles, in a, and it's huge, isn't it? The plagues, parting of the Red Sea, is Moses. Who is the guy who gave us the first five books of the Bible? Moses. The apostles are the one who give us the New Testament. They're there to authenticate the messenger and the message. If you're chasing after signs and wonders, you're going to end up being deceived. That's a guarantee in Scripture. They're even called signs for a reason. A a sign is not an end in itself. You don't reach the first, you know, you're traveling to Durban and you reach the first sign that says Durban and you stop. you don't do that, I hope. Okay. You know, okay, it's pointing beyond itself to something better. Maybe not Durban so much, but the sea. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's how it works. That's why they're called signs. They're not an end in themselves. They're pointing beyond. They, all of this was there to authenticate the message, the gospel. People say they long for the book of Acts again. I don't. Do you really want that? You know people dropping down dead in church? That's awkward. 
That's scary. People dying. You think, you know, uh, I was watching a series with my family a while ago and a person gets kidnapped and there's ransom money and the family has to sell all their things. And I just said to my family, I said, if someone ever kidnaps me, don't worry about it, okay? Um, uh, we don't have the money anyway, but don't like go and sell your shoes and everything so you can you know, try and raise some money for me. I'm fine. They can kill me. I go straight to be with the Lord. But these poor guys get raised back from the dead to die again. I don't want that, okay? I don't want someone to come and pray over me, be raised again and have to die again. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird time. It's a crazy time. It's a transitional time. It's not happening anymore. Let me tell you that. Every story that you will hear is not of someone who had no arm and suddenly they had an arm, who had no eyeballs and suddenly they have an eyeball. And if you hear of someone being raised from the dead, it's your third cousins, aunts, uncles, nephews, missionary friend, somewhere else. It's not public. It's not verifiable. So what do we do? We, we tone, we dumb down miracles. We're like, I nearly hit that car. It's a miracle I didn't hit that car. It's not a miracle. I found a parking. It's a miracle. <laughs> it's not. These were, these, these were great supernatural works. Verifiable, public. Does it mean we can't ask God for healing? Of course not. We can cry out to him and ask him. But this is not happening. The only time you will see signs and wonders in the future, and the scripture is very clear on this. You can go and read Thessalonians. Lying signs and wonders will come with the Antichrist. The person who will actually start to do miracles again, real miracles, in public, will be the Antichrist. And false Christians, apostate Christians who are chasing those things instead of Christ, will be deceived. And the scripture says that they might all be damned because they refuse to believe the truth. Don't be deceived. Don't chase after that. It's, it's fireworks. It's, it's smoke and mirrors. It's Christ. Christ is the substance. And now we tend to think, well, we have something lesser. We don't. We have the scriptures. There's no more apostles. Ephesians 2.20, their purpose was to lay the foundation. And for those of you who are not in the building industry, you only lay a foundation once, Okay. Just so you know that. Unless it's really bad. Okay. You have to do it again. But the scriptures are clear. The foundation has been laid by the apostles and prophets. It is finished. The foundation is finished. What we have is the substance. We have Christ and his revelation. We don't lack anything. Don't feel that we're missing out. That's wrong thinking. We have. We have God's word. They didn't, they didn't even have that in its completion yet. We are so privileged. We have the scriptures that point to, to Christ. And so Paul says, look, I'm a true apostle. I did these things. It was public. It was verifiable. These false guys could not do that. All they did is spoke about their visions that were unverifiable. And so Paul is a true apostle. He, he laid the foundation. There are no more capital A apostles. Okay? That foundation is finished. It is laid. We have it in God's word. And praise God for all the different languages. In our mother tongues, we can read it. We have access to God's truth. Verse 13, he says, For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you, Forgive me this wrong. Obviously, these false apostles are saying, look, Paul doesn't really love you. Uh, he loves the other churches more. You know, he loves Colossae more or the churches in Macedonia. He doesn't really love you guys, which, of course, was a blatant lie. If anything, you could probably argue he loved Corinth more. Okay? He spent so much time there. And what did he do? He didn't burden them. What's he referring to there? He didn't take money from them. 
He didn't receive financial support from them. And then he says, please forgive me for this. He's being sarcastic here. Okay, forgive me for this wrong. Uh, now, let me just say, Paul, just in case you think, oh, thank goodness, we don't have to pay our pastors anymore. Uh, because uh, I had my eye on that jet ski. And, uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Paul is not against supporting uh, those who labor in, in preaching and teaching. Not at all. He teaches the exact opposite. The laborer is worthy of his wages. In fact, one should pay. If you are being taught, you need to pay for it. You need to support those who do it. You can go and read 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Timothy 5. Crystal clear. Other churches Paul took money from. He received financial support from others. It's only the Corinthians that he did not receive financial support from. But he still was not afraid to ask them for money. Uh, earlier on in 2 Corinthians, he talks about support for the, the church in Jerusalem that was experiencing difficulty. So why did Paul not take personal financial support from the church in Corinth? I'm not entirely sure. It's, it's not crystal clear, but I think it was probably to distinguish himself from the culture in Corinth and the false apostles. Because the culture in Corinth was very much like the prosperity movement. Uh, this obsession with, with money, chasing after money. It was a career. It was a way to get rich. Um, and so Paul, also there was the idea that if you, if you supported people, if you were their patron, you could really control them and tell them what they had to do. And so that's probably why Paul refuses to take money from them. And so he... Uh, goes on to say, verse 14, here for the third time I am ready to come to you. So as I said, first visit, he planted the church. Second visit is his painful visit where they reject him. And now he says, I'm getting ready to come and visit you again. And he says this, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. So again, he says, I'm still not going to ask you to support me financially. I'm not going to change on this. I'm not going to ask for financial support from you, for I seek not what is yours, but you. I'm not seeking your money, I want you. And I think then in this this verse, the title for this sermon is not your money, but you, I think we see something of Paul imitating Christ here. Uh, The false apostles were devouring Corinth. They were eating them out of house and home. You can see the Pharisees doing the same thing. All false teachers do that. They're there to take and take and take. But Paul says, I'm, I'm not after your money. It's you that I care about. It's you that I love. And here he is, he is showing Christ-likeness. Okay. The wonderful truth of the gospel is that uh, God is not after your stuff. You know that? God doesn't need you at all. It's not that he was lonely. God is three in one. That perfect fellowship. God is not lonely. He lacked nothing. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your, you know, your personality, your conversational skills, your abilities. He doesn't need it. Listen to some passages. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And does not live in shrines made by man, by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Doesn't need us. Doesn't need air. Doesn't need food. Doesn't need space. Doesn't need time. It's beyond all of those things. It's incomprehensible. Psalm 50 verse 10. For every beast, this is God speaking, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Okay. I might say, but that's actually, that's not really such good news because I thought I was quite amazing. And uh, <laughs> you're telling me that, that I have nothing to offer God. God doesn't need me. I'm not so great. God lacks nothing. That doesn't sound very nice. But let me let me try and... Uh, help you with this because it is wonderful news actually 
Those of you who are married or engaged or in a relationship, if, if the person ever says to you, why do you love me? Okay. You might say, well, I love you because you're beautiful. Okay. That's a good thing to say. Or I love you because you, uh, you just have a wonderful personality or you're kind or well, whatever it is. Those are all good things. But do you know that no matter how beautiful you are now, if you live long enough, <laughs> just the law of thermodynamics, uh, <laughs> everything tends to decay. Um, so, so while it sounds good, you do realize that if the person loves you solely because you're very pretty at the moment, what will happen when you're not so pretty? Then it's not so great, is it? What, what happens when they see that you're not so kind, actually? You lose your temper in a moment. What happens if that person ends up in a coma? You can no longer have conversation with them. I mean, the statistics show that uh, it's a massive percentage. If, some, if one partner in a marriage is, ends up paralyzed or some debilitating accident or disease, the divorce rate shoots up. People leave that spouse. Terrific. So what does that tell you? They didn't love them. It was what they could get. Okay. So this is good news. Okay. Because God didn't love you because of something in you, some potential in you, some nice trait in you, some ability in you. Because that's all going to fail at some point. He doesn't love you because you're good. Because what happens when you're bad then? And he'll stop loving you. The Bible teaches that he loves us in spite of everything that's broken and messed up and evil about us. Deuteronomy 7 verse 7, I love you because I love you. It's actually the most romantic verse in the Bible. I love you because I love you. I have set my love upon you. And this is good news because no matter if you go home and you sin on the way home after church, do you think he will stop loving you if you're his child? No, it won't change his love for you. Because he didn't love you in the first place because you were good. He set his love upon you and nothing you do. Okay, understand what I'm saying here? This is not a license to sin. But it doesn't matter what you do. If you're a child of God, he will never stop loving you. Okay? You can go to the scriptures and see the horrific things that God's people do. They behave worse than pagans. Look at David. Look at Samson. My goodness. <laughs> Sunday school story. But they skip out most of it. Okay? <laughs> it's just we all know Samson's strong and broke some stuff. Uh, but you go and read that man's life, what a nightmare. Okay. God gave him so much, and he just, he just used it for evil. Uh, and yet we will see him in glory. Okay. Because God didn't choose him because he, he was a good guy, and now he's gone bad, and sorry, okay, I, you know, now I changed my mind. He has set his love. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's not your stuff. I'm not after your money. It's you. I love you, Corinthian church. That's what true love is. What does he want? What's best for them? He wants them to know Christ. It's not just about defending his apostleship. Over and over again, it's, it's, it's ultimately Christ. That they would know Christ, that they would love Christ, because what he's proclaiming is Christ. And that's what Christian love is. Christian love is you want people to know Christ. That's... That's the most loving thing, isn't it, right? If you want what's best for someone, for your spouse, for your children, for your neighbor, for your work colleagues, if you truly love them, you will want them to know Christ and have eternal life. How can you love your enemy? It is an impossibility unless it is to know Christ. Okay. You can't work up nice feelings for someone who has murdered family members. You can't work up nice feelings. That's just, what is that? You're deceiving yourself. That's, that's to, deny injustice, uh, to deny justice. 
But you can love enemies and say, I want you to know Christ. I want you to be saved. Okay. Because you know when someone is saved, they're a new creation. Okay. That old person is put to death. So only Christians can love like this. Unbelievers cannot love like this. Only Christians can love in this way. We're not after what we can get. We want people to know Christ and to be a part of that, that process. That is Christian love. Now, of course, we haven't arrived. It's a process. But let me challenge on that. If you're in, in marriage or any relationship, if you're, if you're there to just see what you can get out of it, that is not Christian love. Okay. That's using people for what you can get from them. Okay. Christian love transcends that to say, even if even if you end up in a coma, the story I am sure maybe I've shared it to B.B. Warfield, the great theologian, on the honeymoon, on their honeymoon, think not sure exactly. I think his wife was struck by lightning, paralyzed, on the honeymoon. And he cared for her for, I don't know how many, 40 years, bedridden. Is that, is that your life? You know, you plan it. What I want to do is meet someone amazing, get married, and then care for her while she's bedridden for the rest of my life. No. He had all these plans, all these dreams, walking on the beach together, doing this, doing that, all of these things. Over, finished, gone. If he didn't have Christian love, he'd say, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll trade her in for someone else. Parents can look after her. I'm going to find someone else. That's the world. But what does he do? He stays with her. Uh, he changed his whole work structure so he could be with her, his lecturing schedule, all of those things, so that he could be with her every single day. If he just said, well, what can I get from you? Sexual intimacy, what can I get from you? Then, then it's worthwhile. Paul is saying, it's not you, it's not your money. It's you that I want. And that's Christian love. We want what's best for, for, for people. And what is best for people is that they know Christ. And then he says, for children are not bound to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So, uh, I didn't really like this verse too much. <laughs> Send Lisbon out. Uh, because uh, I love my children, and I have a wonderful plan for their lives. Uh, and that plan is that they make a lot of money and look after me, so I can play golf, okay? Uh, Paul says, no, parents are supposed to, you know, save up for their children. Now, let me just say up front, this is not comprehensive parenting. Elsewhere, Paul says, 1 Timothy 5.8, he says, children should look after their parents, okay? So don't take this as, you know, comprehensive if you're a child. Like, whew, I'm not caring for my parents because the Bible says here, yeah, you're supposed to look after me. Uh, that's ungodly. But certainly while they're still young, of course, it's the parents' responsibility to care for their children. Uh, at lunch this afternoon, um, we're talking about weddings and going to weddings and, you know, you get all that free food, you know, pile it on. And we were just joking, like, it's not worth going to a wedding if there's no free food. Uh, so my son Calvin says, yeah, it's because it's free. And I, look, I looked at him, I said, all your meals are free. <laughs> He doesn't buy his meals. He doesn't pay me anything. Uh, but that's the idea. And that's what he's saying here. Now, now, can you see the love of Paul? Sometimes he's, he's sarcastic and he uses you know, biting sarcasm and irony. But never think that he has stopped loving them. Already we've seen that. He's saying uh, he's, he's a father to them. He has to correct them sometimes and use strong language sometimes. But God does the same with us. Go and read the scriptures. But never confuse that, that, that God is not a father who loves us. Or that Paul did not love the Corinthians. He's a father to them. He's saying, like, like a father, I care for you. So, verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? 
That's the terrible thing about the Corinthian church. Paul loved them more, and yet they loved him less. They hurt him the most. It was the deepest betrayal. They were ungrateful. D.A. Carson says this, Christians bent on maturity should work hard at gratitude. Thankfulness to friends, parents, senior believers who have helped us on our way, and above all to God himself, is not only common courtesy, it is something more, much more. It is simultaneously a powerful antidote to bitterness and malice, and potent acknowledgement that we stand by grace. What else could ever display gratitude as the appropriate response to grace? whether the special grace that brings us salvation or the grace mediated through fellow believers, friends, and events. Grace gives. What more can we do then? Give thanks. What response to grace could be more vile than ingratitude? So God's people must be a grateful people, a people who commend what is good and beautiful and honorable and right, and a people who give thanks. Again, let me encourage you to build that culture. Say thank you to people. Say thank you to those who discipled you. Just to encourage. It's, it's been wonderful to me over the years. Every now and then people will just, in the church, pop me a message, an SMS. Hi, Pastor Michael, I just want to say thank you for, uh, for your teaching or thank you for this. And it's such an encouragement. We, we all know those children that are little brats. They just snatch a sweet and run off. Okay? Don't, we mustn't be like that. We mustn't be brats. Let's learn to give thanks. Thanks to God, of course, but thanks for one another. Okay? Learn to, to be a grateful person. And that will change your perception, isn't it, right? Is that old song, count your blessings, name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Okay. It's true. Start to just give thanks. Lord, what have you given me? How have you looked after me all these years? How many wonderful things have you allowed me to enjoy? How many flavors to taste? How many sunsets and sunrises to see? Just, just all these things that we don't deserve. Okay? It's not just we don't deserve some of the big things. We don't deserve any blessing. Verse 16, by granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. This is is incredible. Paul doesn't take money from them. The false apostles say, no, well, he's actually just been sneaky. What he's going to do is with this this money that he's asking for the church in Jerusalem, that's that's what he's he's actually going to take. So he's playing the long game. He's not asking for a bit of support each month. He wants a big, a big amount for Jerusalem, and that's what he's going to take. So you can see the slander. They're saying Paul is deceitful, that he wants to steal even more money. He's pretending to be a good guy, but it's actually a con. And so Paul says in verse 17, Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So uh, with this money that they're collecting for Jerusalem, you will see here that Paul does not go alone. He goes with Titus and this other unmentioned brother who they, who they know and is trustworthy. They know his character and they know Titus and Titus's character. So here's just some important principles when it comes to financial integrity as a church. Okay, and so this is a church plant, um, developing, growing the ministries. Financial integrity is critical. Uh, We've seen it over and over again, how many scandals there are, aren't there? Pastors caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Um financial integrity. That's why whenever money was being taken from one place to another, it was not Paul by himself. He took other brothers with him. And so to set those same checks and balances in place when counting the money, 
two or three people counting the money, if there's cash, with the bank, banking system. Not that one person can just draw money out, but that there are checks and balances. It has to be approved. These things are critical, not just for pastors, for every Christian to have financial integrity. Money has incredible power to cause division and sin, isn't that right? Money destroys relationships. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And so Paul is again saying, no, you cannot accuse me of that. I, got trust, I have trustworthy men who have never taken advantage of you, and when I'm going to come and fetch this collection, they will come with me. Okay. Again, always practicing integrity. So let me end here. D.A. Carson says, Their understanding, the Corinthians' understanding of triumphalistic leadership inevitably cried out for strong authority figures who actually exploited them. The guys who were actually robbing them were these false apostles. Paul is like the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not take advantage of the Corinthians. He does not exploit them. He does not steal from them. The Lord Jesus Christ will never exploit you, will never take advantage of you. If you're not a Christian, his love is, is so amazing. It is not based on what you can offer him. It's not based on your performance. It is freely given. You must receive it humbly. You must bend the knee, repent of your sin, and take it as a free gift. If you refuse to humble yourself, then there is no hope. But he is a good savior who will never exploit you, never take advantage of you, never manipulate you, never lie to you. And Paul is an example of him. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the example of Paul as he points us to Christ, as he imitates Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, what an amazing savior you are. Father, we thank you for your love. It is not based on our performance or how many devotions we've had, how many chapters of the Bible we've read, how many meetings we've gone to. Your love is, is rooted in your own um, choice, in your own free decision. It's not rooted in us. We don't know why it's inscrutable. Uh, I don't know why you would set your love upon me. Uh, I, I meet so many other people who seem much more deserving of salvation. But Lord, we are so thankful for your love for us. And Lord, help us really to understand the gospel, not to, to try and do good works out of shame and guilt and um, trying to impress you in some way, trying to earn your love or something like that. Help us to do good works out of the liberty that is ours in Christ, that we are your children, we are loved perfectly. And so we... Pray that you would do this. If there are any here or any who listen or watch who don't yet know you, please have mercy upon them. May they be drawn to the love of Christ. In everything, would you be glorified. Amen.